Well, I, you know, I've always put things on the shelf. When I was doing my PhD work, I ran into some uh, some interesting researchers. One of them uh, did research for Truman Madsen. I got to know Truman Madsen through through that uh, source, and uh, just we would swap material. And this was when I was doing my PhD at BYU, and plus my studies in the history of religion. I mean, for example, I. <clears throat> I began to study the uh, the Second Great Awakening uh, um, uh, discourses by Methodists and others at camp meetings, and I was struck of how similar those uh, those sermons and the doctrine, the Protestant doctrine, and the form and the and the conversion pattern and and all of the things that's in my today in my chapter four in an insider's view. And how struck I was with how similar that was to the mainline preachers in the Book of Mormon, say, was starting with Enos and going right up through Alma too, and those discord, Benjamin and Amulek, and and uh, there's a lot of similarity. I thought, my gosh, that's striking. Yeah. And so you know, I just put that on the shelf. I also I knew there was a lot of Bible in the Book of Mormon, and the, and the more I studied the Bible and and learned the Bible. The the more I saw that the Bible was in the Book of Mormon, I, I, the LDS people don't are not truly aware of how much Bible is in the Book of Mormon. So. And, and yeah, and we'll cover that when we, we actually dig into the book. But okay. so so we had the Bible, we had the we had the uh, the evangelical influence there, uh, the Smith family dynamics. Uh, I was introduced to view of the Hebrews, uh, you know this those kind of kind of things. Uh, but I really, I really didn't do much of anything till I came back to Salt Lake, and I was, I was, uh, I was at East Seminary for one year. This was 1980 up through about 1987. I spent seven years at Brighton High School, which is to be close to my home, mm-hmm. and that's when I participated more in MHA and uh, the Mormon History Association. Mormon History Association and. Uh, you know the sources were here begin, but the thing that really triggered me was um, my interest in this was Mark Kaufman and the Salamander. What year was that letter? That was nineteen eighty four. Give our give our listeners a brief history of you know a lot of people might know the name, some know it in depth, but probably few know the basic history of what happened there. So tell us real quick what happened as, as you were experiencing it. So you were in Salt Lake. When Mark Hoffman yes, went I'd, down, I'd met Mark Hoffman like four days before the bombings, and uh, and uh, when the bombings started, we were all opening our mailboxes with a stick and looking underneath our cars. We wondered if uh, if they were out to get historians or what. Uh, hmm. But uh, how'd you meet Mark Hoffman? What were the I what, met him through Brent Metcalf. Brent Metcalf wrote a book called New Approaches: to The Book of Mormon, and uh, and he worked did research for. Uh, for Mark Hoffman, and I met... Uh, but Brent hadn't published that book at the time, not, right? No, he had not. So what was he, he doing he, at the he time? He was doing... He was working for for uh, Mark Hoffman. and uh, Just as a researcher? Yeah, as a researcher and whatever. How did you... Like, how did you meet Brent? You know, I honestly can't remember how I met Brent, but... Uh, 
Would it have been through MHA or just through a it circle of Mormon through, historians? It, it, I honestly can't remember. Okay, how. all right. That goes that's, back quite a ways. No but, problem. But, uh, of course, Mark Hoffman was was doing all this work on documents that we later found out were, were made in his basement. Right, yeah. But they were causing quite a stir in the uh, 1984 when all this came out. And when the Salamander letter came out, I thought, wow, this is uh, this is very interesting to me. And so I thought, I, I think I'll go back and reread the affidavits by E.D. Howe in the Mormonism Unveiled. And, of course, the... Uh, the 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 one of the affidavits in there was written by uh, Willard Chase, and he talks about how Joseph Senior in the summer of twenty seven, before Joseph gets the place, was uh, was told the story by Joseph Senior, and how he went to the hill, and there was something like a toad there, mm-hmm. and uh, we later learned that Mark Hoffman used that very affidavit while. Uh, to to write up his white salamander, and he did it down here on the Highland Drive in the uh, oh, what's that uh, training table restaurant? And then he went down to a park down below a, a mile and actually wrote it out. But he'd written it on a napkin, hmm. and uh, and so he thought something like a toad, white salamander, okay. uh, and then. Uh, the research took off from there, and uh, Michael Quinn found, a, 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 I think it was a ni- 1867 interview by uh, Kelly. He was an RLDS member of the presiding bishopric. And uh, when he went and interviewed uh, Smith's neighbors, uh, Benjamin Saunders, good friend of the Smiths and very loyal to the Smiths, I might add, Benjamin was, and his mother, he found uh, something about something like a toad, too. In, mm-hmm. in that interview, that he had heard personally Joseph say that to him and his mother. That, mm-hmm. and then I had found one in the in the New York newspaper, and Quinn and I swept swept uh, salamander stories or or toad stories, something like toads. <laughs> so we had I had found one, and Quinn had found one, and we also and then we had Martin Harris, the white salamander letter, and then we had the uh, the Willard Chase. Um, uh, affidavit of something like a toad. So here we have four references to it, and so that got me interested in in writing some, I'd call them position papers. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> So let me just break in for a second. So, you know, you went from, from the 60s through the 70s to the early 80s, um, you know, teaching seminary and institute, um, strong testimony of the church, and having some doubts and questions, but mostly putting them on the shelf, That's um, so to speak. You come, that'd be true blue Mormon. You come to Salt Lake, and uh, maybe you have some more time that you didn't have before, but something led you to start uh, getting in with the Mormon History Association. A couple things jump out at me, and, and one is, as I'm thinking about the fair and farms guys that might be listening, some of the apologists or the really conservative folks, they're going to immediately go, whoa, well, that explains it. Grant Palmer's hanging around with Brett Metcalf, who you know many like to demonize, and, and Michael Quinn, who many others have demonized. You know, the, this must have been a, a evil secret combination cabal that was started in the early '80s <laughs> that uh, culminated. So, can you just talk briefly? What was the context where you would talk with with Brett or with Michael Quinn? Was it in a believing context? Was it in a faithful context? Was it in a pernicious sort of subversive context you know well there was a variety quinn of course it was from a believing context uh, ronald walker was a was a bishop in the very much a believing context uh, martin or uh, um 
I, I talked to many people at BYU. Many. Yeah. And uh, as these problems began to emerge, I would ask a variety of people. I says, you know, what about this? And they'd say yes. Through generally, basically, they'd say, well, yes, we have some problems, but we don't. I don't think we have very good answers to it. That was kind of a general. But I, I talked to many of them over the years. So you were having, you were starting to dig into the stuff and starting to really have yeah. questions. But it's you were the starting... Salamander letter by Mark Hoffman that got me writing. Okay, so you started writing. And I wrote some papers under the name of a, a person named Paul Pry. And uh, the farms people like to make a big thing of that. There was, there was no, no, no big thing at all about that, really. Uh, uh, I've traveled a, a good deal. And if you go over to the West End, which is kind of, uh, of, of London, you'll see plays there. It's kind of comparable to uh, Broadway in New York. And it'll advertise a play, and it will say things like, uh, Paul Pry says, mm-hmm. uh, be curious, uh, look beneath, or no, visit, go to this play, uh, mm-hmm. look into it. Uh, in other words, pry, pry into it. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, Paul Pry, Palmer Pry, that's... That's, why, what, I, why that's pen, what I was doing. So you were, okay, why uh, a pen name at all? I think at that point it was, it was if you're going to raise questions and you're in CES, that that was probably a dangerous thing to do. So you feared for your employment a little I, bit. I would say yes to some extent. It just, and so it only lasted about six months. And I'd the, say of the, of the pages I wrote, and I and I sent it out for peer review, and they got passed all over the church. Mm-hmm. These these five or six chapters. And by the way, I would say of all that material I wrote in eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, uh, virtually none of it is in this current book, an insider's view. So when you say it only lasted about six months, what is it? It meaning the the pseudonym Paul Pry. Then people knew who I was. Who, so who who are the people that were so you 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 created some position papers on the Salamander letters? Yes, and that's origins. the only one of the Paul Pry writings that ever ended up into to the current insider's view. The rest of it. And was, what were the other ones you were writing? Oh, I, I'd write things about uh, uh, history, how a person can uh, deal with history, and some can't, and some can. I, I dealt with at that time. I was writing about the. The Alvin connection to the Salamander letter, uh, bringing in some of those documents uh, about uh, the procedure of treasure digging and the formulas that were being used and things of that nature. And what, who was the intended audience for these uh, articles? There, there wasn't any intended audience. It was just me trying to process uh, curious and valuing truth more than loyalty to a tradition and, be, and having curiosity that I wrote this mainly for them myself, and I send these papers out for some criticism, and like I said, they went all over the church. Who'd you send them to? I'd give them to my seminary uh, faculty members. I'd give them to uh, anybody who was interested in them. And you'd and say, like I, I wrote... Said, I've always opened. And you'd say, I wrote this under the pen name Paul Pry, or right. did you say, I've got a buddy named Paul Pry who... Yeah, and, and people knew who I was, even though I was using Paul Pry. I didn't tell every... Not everybody knew that at first, but... You, that, you would give it to friends that you trusted? Yes. 
And did they know you were the author of the of oh, the yes. articles? Oh yes. Of and did they ever say why Paul Pry? You just they, well, they, they, they probably they understood, understood especially my CES colleagues. That uh, this is you're raising some some questions with the the traditional accounts of the church, and it was it was a curiosity thing for me. And uh, eventually, I, the, the way I came into uh, information about the Salamander Letter is I contacted uh, one of the senior members of the Smith Institute. Uh, and uh, he he's the one that handed me the golden pot, right? And he had done some research on. It. He says there's definitely some connections here. Uh, Marvin Hale thought that the the parallels were rather overwhelming. So so you have seminary institute teachers, CS employees in the Salt Lake area who are affiliated with MHA, who are starting because of the Mark Hoffman thing, starting to really get curious and interested. Yes. And amongst themselves, behind the scenes, they're talking about studying the history. Sharing with each other well, ideas, well, thoughts, papers. Well, some of them are, and some of them are very disturbed by uh, what I wrote and passed around. Right. Okay. And that's. And so, were you guys ever just sitting there going, "Man, what do you think about this?" And what were the feelings and the sentiment that were being expressed behind doors by the CES employees that were plugged in to the issues? Well, and it the depended who they were. I mean, we we talk about B. H. Roberts' studies of the Book of Mormon came out about that time, you know. And, as I remember, 86, 87, 85, somewhere in there. We, we discussed stuff like that, and and uh, it made some of people very uncomfortable. Others were, were more, had more curiosity. Others had more of a, you know, we, we weren't teaching this in the classroom, you understand. None of us were. Right. But uh, anyway, this is, this is what triggered me. And then when Ron, well, I shouldn't say his name, but... Uh, uh, BYU history professor gave me a, a lot of material, on some some a art, few articles, and the ETA Hoffman. He says, Grant, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I went home and read the the, the piece seven times, and uh, and uh, I came back and we sat down, and he says, Well, did you see this motif and that motif and 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 that one? I says, Yeah, but did you see this, 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 and this? And and uh, and that's what kind of got me interested. And then two other professors, not not that one, uh, I'd presented uh, the Paul Price stuff to them. They knew who I was, BYU history professors. And uh, they says, you you really ought to write an article on that. Let us help you write an introduction. I wasn't a writer. You know, this is, this is I never intended to publish anything of the Paul Pry until they says, well, why don't you take this one article on the Golden Pod? This is kind of something new and publish something on it, and we'll help you write an introduction. So it was going to be an article that would be submitted somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that was the... So, so these things were never published. They were never uh, designed to be published at that point. Right. Position papers to share with friends, sure. to and explore just, issues, yeah, etc. And, and just wanted feedback. And on you put what, a name on it, you know, just sure. kind of clever and creative, but you didn't yeah, want to Paul identify Pry, yourself. Yeah, prize into things. That's yeah, me. Right. So real quick... Did, what, what kept you from feeling the Holy Ghost and saying, you know, the church is true. I don't want to hurt people's testimonies. The brethren have told us what we need to think and feel and do. I'm not going to go and explore this stuff. I'm happy enough with my testimony. I'm happy enough with my understanding of the gospel. And I certainly don't want to be spreading things that might damage or undermine people's faith. What kept you as a CS employee in the mid-80s from just suppressing all that and saying, better leave it alone? Why not? Why not, Grant Palmer? Just leave it alone. Well, I, 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 I'm one of those persons that you, 
described at the, the front end of this interview. I, I have more curiosity than fear, and I, I have more interest in truth and loyalty to a tradition. To me, those are higher virtues. And uh, I've always been open sharing stuff. Uh, it's just that when the Salamander Ladder began to trigger my interest in that, I thought these are some very interesting parallels. And like I said, then we had four statements that said something like a toad and, of course, the bogus letter, a white salamander. So we had four of them. And after I'd written something up, I went back to the uh, the, the history professor who had given me the Golden Pot article. And uh, this was after Hoffman's article was found to be bogus, uh, the Salamander letter. And and we both said, you know, it hardly changed anything that we'd written. We both agreed that he'd written stuff, I'd written stuff. Right. And uh, I think he was told by Neil Maxwell to leave it alone. Uh, The Golden Pot. Yeah. So I think that's right. So so real quick, when when you learned that uh, Hoffman, at some point you must have learned that Hoffman had connections into the first presidency, that uh, he was selling documents to uh, the the church first presidency, that they were purchasing documents from him, not only original documents but documents that he had forged. Uh, that they were trying to buy these. Some accused they were trying to buy these to hide them or keep them secret. Others others say that they were just, you know, interested in, in owning them and possessing them because, the, you know, church history, mm-hmm. it's a church. But but eventually, as he was discovered to be a fraud, uh, and, and many say he sort of pulled the wool over the eyes of the First Presidency, and I think Downey Jokes has even acknowledged in an Ensign article that the Brethren were fooled and misled and that we shouldn't expect that these trusting men aren't going to be duped by nefarious people at times. How did that all come through to you, and how did you process that uh, in your mind uh, and reconcile it and justify it? Or did you? Or was that a big concern to you? State the question just shorter sentence. Sorry. Um, uh, how did you reconcile at the time or process the fact that Hoffman had been able uh, to have such close access to the to the first presidency, and to even fool them, and that they were apparently trying to purchase up uh, these documents with with as some people claim a desire to hide them. Well, for for me, I I thought they were trying to suppress things. I I think uh, President Hinckley had uh, used twenty five thousand dollars, as I remember, out of a special fund to buy the Josiah Stoll magic letter that was supposedly written in Joseph's hand in 1825. And he said the church didn't own it. And it seemed to be a a, a numbers game or a, just a, a shell game there. And and uh, and this same historian told me that we did have it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that, that, that charade went on for about nine or 11 months. And finally they admitted the church did have the letter. But... It, Technically, it wasn't purchased by church funds, so the church didn't own it. It was that kind of a and and then I think the uh there there was there was kind of a a, a feeling that things were were trying to be kept in the in a black hole and not revealed the, the McClellan papers the church was trying to buy those and the, we we kind of thought that they'd never see the light of day if they did and the, they were negotiating to buy those. I think Steve Christensen was the middleman to, to buy those from the church. And 
And so we were, we had our suspicions that they weren't being very upfront about things uh, uh, that Hoffman was finding. And so how did that affect me? Um, I just kept doing my work. I just thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to pursue this independently. What I uh, what I see, what I find. So, did you feel your faith in the mid '80s slipping and eroding? I I. Your faith in the in the brethren or in the authenticity of the church or in the origins no, of the church? No, I was just curious. And if you read the first drafts of the uh, the Salamander uh, paper that I wrote under Paul Pry, you'll just see that I'm raising a lot of questions and, and, and making some parallels and just find this very interesting. So this wasn't a crisis of faith for you at this point? No. Uh, in the origins of no, the church? No, I was just curious. You were just yeah, curious. Just were curious. you excited? You were... Oh, I was very excited because I always like to learn and... Uh, I'd written these position papers, and like I say, they got passed all over and uh, and so forth. So then uh, some of those papers went to George Smith, who's the owner of uh, Signature Book, and he uh, he wrote me a letter and says, uh, I'm very interested in the work that Paul Pry is doing. He knew I was. <laughs> and uh, and uh, if you ever consider publishing something, we, we'd be interested in the Signature Book. What what year was this about? I think it was eighty six or eighty seven. Okay, and so I I thought hmm, I never even considered that, and the, except for this article that I was, yeah, of the, the salamander material. So I thought, well, I I just kept doing more research, and you know, one thing led to another, and so I wrote a, a manuscript called New York Mormonism, and it was the precursor to the book I have today. Now, during this time, I think it's important to say that I began to be conflicted enough about 1985, 86, 87, 88, right through there, conflicted enough that it was just weighing on my mind. What are the answers to this? This is an increasing question that I had. And I was teaching seminary over at Brighton Seminary. I was teaching my own children over there. And I never talked about any of this, but it was a beginning. I I just had so many questions that I, I needed to get some answers. So I went to my file leader, who was at the time over the entire Salt Lake Valley, Institute and seminary. And I and I said to him, I am conflicted about what I'm doing in the classroom. And he was very gracious to me. And he asked me some questions. And at that point in time I was still orthodox enough. Mm-hmm. And he says I knew there was a position open at the Salt Lake County Jail. And so I asked him if I could go there to work things out. So what was the conflict? get out of the classroom. Why was the classroom causing you conflict? I was just so uh, disturbed the more I had studied in 86 and 87 that it it reached a point where I've got to find some answers. These things are more serious than I thought they were initially. And... uh, as I began to look into priesthood restoration and the, the witnesses of the Book of Mormon and the content of the Book of Mormon and uh, the first visions and take a serious look at things. And so 
I was conflicted enough. I says I I would feel I would feel more comfortable in going to the Salt Lake County Jail, and he granted me that. And and the jail administration says, look, you're the only full time LDS Institute religion teacher here, and, and it was in the old facilities. They didn't have a lot of rooms to meet, so we would like you to teach New Testament material or or biblical material that would be suitable to all inmates. And I was, of course, happy to do that. So I didn't teach any Mormon studies. What year was this? This was 88 when I finally ended up there. And and my file leader says, yes, happy to have you go down there. So he knew that I was conflicted. He knew what... Uh, and he, and he allowed me to go down there to work things out. And and he knew that I could only counsel and teach biblical material. So the church knew that. And the jail administration insisted on it. And, I, and so this was all out in the open. And, and that worked very well for me. And so I, I did my work there. In fact, my Incomparable Jesus book, which is a sequel to the first book, is really the lessons I taught to inmates in the Salt Lake County Jail and some of the experiences I had with them in the jail. So unlike what farms would have you believe, this was really quite up front. Right. Not and, some and I had a very honorable, wonderful 34-year career. The last 13 years was was at the Salt Lake County Jail. Had I not been allowed to go there, I probably could not have continued teaching and uh, would have quit, although that would have prevented, presented a, a financial hardship to me. What do you do after you've spent 25 years or 20, 23 years and uh, you're you know, 40-something years old and uh, you just don't go out and work for the Presbyterians or something? It's, uh, right. So, yes, there was you a would have lost. You would have lost your retirement. Yes, you didn't get much retirement unless you were like five years uh, away. Away. That's the way they've designed it. And uh, but I felt very comfortable in what I was doing, and so I would go around and I says, "Look, I found all this stuff," and I'd go to all kinds of people I had respect for of all persuasions, unbelievers, people just like myself, colleagues, BYU professors, and say, "What about this?" I'd go to, to my colleagues at the U, U Institute and ask them, those I felt comfortable with. Not all would feel comfortable discussing this, but there were a number who were. And so so basically they, they says, well, yeah, we know about the problems. We don't have very good answers to this or that. We have a pretty good answer over here and that that kind of thing. So I And, and then my wife died. She got cancer. And so my research came to a screeching halt uh, the year before she died, the year after she died. What year was this? This was uh, in 91, 92, but before, before 93. We, before we talk about that, what was the, with your, with your wife, with your children, with your siblings, your parents, and with extended friends and family, how much did family and friends know you were struggling were you keeping this in the closet because you were worried? Were you talking about this in, in you know Sunday school and in priesthood? Not at all. So you were very quiet about no, this. Not in, a word at not, church. Not a word about it. 
And I was teaching the high priest quorum all during this time. And you weren't bringing this stuff up. I didn't bring any of it up. In fact, uh, a good many of them hardly knew I was even writing a book till right at the end. And and how how much did your uh, wife and kids know about uh, what you were feeling and struggling? Well, my wife knew. So you would talk about it with but her. My kids didn't know. Was she worried about you? Was she worried herself? Well, I asked her, "What do you think?" She read the manuscript. And she says, uh, um, "I says she says I think it's probably true." Mm-hmm. But I would so even after all of that, uh, and and I, uh, my parents knew a little bit. I just tell them, you know, we have some, we have more problems than I thought in our in the Mormon past. And I says. At some point, I says it's it's really kind of like a minefield. It, it doesn't matter what you take a look at. There's going to be some adjustment to what you, we've been taught. Yeah. And so we talk like that. And the, and the closer I got to the book, of course, publishing, I I felt more secure in in what I was finding. But I was always going to lunch or talking to a variety of people. Is is there an orthodox way out of these difficulties? That was my constant theme when I would talk to... Who are your confidants? I mean, you don't have to name names, but if you want to, you can, or you can just describe At least a half their relationships with you. BYU history professors. So this is the BYU history faculty, yeah. basically. These were people at the, at the U of U Institute of Religion, three or four of them. Uh-huh. This was some of my other colleagues who taught elsewhere. Okay. Uh, this would be anybody that I thought was informed enough that they might have an intelligent answer. So were you going to Sunstone uh, Symposia as yes, well? Yes, I was attending Sunstone and uh, some and some MHA presentations, even giving a presentation here and there. Were you subscribing to Sunstone and Dialogue as well? Yes. Okay. Yes, I was. And at the, at the time, I had been doing that for a number of years. Did that have the stigma back then that it acquired later? I mean, were you able to have a sunstone openly in your house, or did you kind of put them in a secret place? Or I didn't share them, but I was just interested. In what, okay. Again, I'm always open to ideas, and and I actually taught a number of things that I liked from sunstone to my high priest, but I never told them where it came from, and they loved it. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. So your wife, your wife knew. Uh, she was. Was she concerned about you? Was she concerned about her? Well, I think so because she could see that I was conflicted about it, and uh, and so yes, there was. But it was a kind of thing where we. It wasn't the kind of thing that yes, I was conflicted, but I hadn't really reached any nasty conclusions about things. I was looking for orthodox answers, right? And I, and constantly. So finally, uh, when we so I. So after my wife died in that two or three years where I didn't do much with it, then I, I thought, well, okay, I'll take a, a serious look. The, maybe the solution to to thinking what I've found so far, uh, maybe I can keep searching and find more. It just got more problematic. Right. And so finally— This I, is while you're at, empl- at the jail. I was at the jail, and I was doing my job, and I was teaching Jesus and counseling inmates. I, I wasn't talking at all about— Mormon studies at all. So that worked out pretty well for me, and I, I think the church. Now, some people would say, oh, well, you're a real hypocrite. But but to me, it wasn't because I was up front with my file leader. He knew why I was there. I was working things out. And uh, so I had ongoing studies on my own time, sure. So 
So in 94 up through 99, 97, I, I really, you know, looked into it and found I've, and, and it got more problematic. And so I said, and so at this time, that point in time, uh, Signature Books was pushing me for conclusions mm-hmm. to, in, to my manuscript because I'd, I'd turned it in. Okay, so when did you start writing a manuscript officially with the intent of publishing a book? I, I think it just kind of a gradual thing. It was called New York Mormonism, and then I changed it to Understanding Mormon Origins, and then Signature Book thought it would be a more catchy title to call it Insider's View of Mormon Origins, and that's what ended. I think George Smith named the book, um, what, what, and, and I went along with that. That's fine. What year did you start writing? Did you, did you say, okay, I'm going to start writing a book now? Well, like I say, I, I'd done a lot of research. George Smith had encouraged me around 87, 88 to put something together, and, and, I, and I just kind of thought, well, okay, I'll kind of pursue this. I don't know if I'll turn it in. I don't know if they'll be interested. I don't know. And then, then my wife problems came along. Right. And so I would say I seriously started writing a book about 1994. Okay. Okay. Having it, ha, ha, it had been a thought or a dream for seven years or so. Yeah, and I'd written some position papers, and you know, because I'm a curious, analytical person, I think. And so, about '94, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do some more research and see where this goes, and if you know. So I did the research up through around, uh, like it was about '90, '99, and then they were really pushing me to to write a conclusion signature book was and so i thought wow i i don't really have orthodox answers to any of these foundational events mm-hmm. and i i have to i have to admit this is the way things seem to be right and so i submitted i submitted my uh, my conclusions to signature book, and then I tendered my resignation from church education four years early. I felt that once I, as long as I was really honestly struggling to find a way out of these difficulties, that I was ethically justified in what I was doing. It was just my, I was writing a book, yes, but I didn't know how I was going to conclude this. Right. So when I've reached a point where I thought there's no way out of these difficulties, I've talked to all these people, and they don't have any better answers than, than, than I have, I submitted the conclusion and offered my resignation for the following June. Was it a big sacrifice to retire early? Um, Financially? No, it, it was somewhat, but not, not serious. Okay. And and let's let's get real here. The financial was a consideration in waiting. I mean, I would have been fired for writing this book. There's no doubt about it. That was a consideration, but it was not the only consideration. The main thing is what I've been pushing here that or dwelling on that that I felt comfortable with myself. My file leaders knew that I had some problems, and. Uh, and and that's that's how it went down. Yeah. And so I get letters for people who say, "Oh, you're a real hypocrite." You know, why could you take the church's money all this year? And uh, 
and it hurts, but I don't feel all that bad about it when you understand the story behind what happened. In fact, if you'd like, I've got a copy there on my career in CES. It's that one single page. Have you ever seen that before? No, no. You might want to just take a look at that for your own. It's also on Signature Book's website, and I wrote it in response to some of the nasty things that were written about Maybe if you can send me an electronic copy, I'll post it to the blog entry. Okay. And we'll submit this for our readers to look at. Okay, I'll be happy to do that. It's short, but it it kind of tells uh, my side of the story. Sure. I feel very comfortable with what I've done. Other people may fully understand everything I've said today and still think I did an unethical thing, but I don't. Right. And most people who criticize me really don't know the story of how I, 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 my leaders knew my situation. Sure. What I want to do in just a couple minutes is actually uh, take this ep- this uh, episode into a new chapter by digging into the book itself. But let me just ask you a few questions about the book real quick. Um, you mentioned that uh, George Smith named the book. Is that right? That's what, yes. And, they, and it was their prerogative to do that. I They could do what they wanted on that. But I, I wasn't against it. They just said they thought it would be more of a marketing and and he turned out to be right. Yeah. So that that's actually you know I talked to uh, uh, you know John Lynch of Fair just last week, and and I went up to the fact on you up on the Fair website up on fairlds.org, and one of the first the first criticism they have of you is that you're not an insider, that you're a disgruntled apostate, that you uh, you know you weren't operating at the inside echelons of church headquarters. So to claim that you're an insider, you're you're anything but an insider. You're an outsider. It would be their uh, argument that I'm not personally necessarily crazy about. So tell us what you meant by insider. You just said it was sort of a marketing decision, but you know uh, what, what's the context under which you felt comfortable, um, you, you know, claiming the term insider? Well, like I said, my book, the manuscript was titled from roughly '94 through '99 or even 2000. Um, Understanding Mormon origins. That's the way I submitted it. So that's that was your intent all along. That was the intent, and uh, I don't know what happened on the internal machinations at Signature Book, but uh, I I was told that George Smith uh, thought that, th- that this would be a better marketing title, right? An insider's view of Mormon origins, and from my perspective, I am an insider in every. Respect. I mean, I'm four, six-generation LDS. I've taught institute seminary, mainly as an institute director for the church for 34 years. I've devoted all, a, a huge chunk of my life to this. I, I don't know what, they, what, what someone else would mean by an insider, right. but that seems to me to qualify enough to call yourself an insider. And I, I was frankly a little surprised at that criticism. You thought Still that would, you thought that would be a natural. I, yeah, I didn't think that'd be a problem. Employed by the church for thirty four years, church employee. Yeah. Uh, you know, teaching official church curriculum and doctrine. Me- sure. Yeah. That, okay. I did, I was surprised. Yeah. When it came up, but that's that's one of the things they like to talk about. But I don't think the argument has much merit. Myself, I don't. I don't know, but. I wish that that farms would have well would have plowed into the content of the book instead of talking about me so much. Yeah, and that's I went up to the the fact on you, and there's actually very little to any 
in the overall summation of the reviews that, that FAIR publishes, there's almost uh, nothing on the substance of what you wrote. It's all about, are you an insider? You know, were you dishonest in how you did this? Yeah, it's all about me. Um, is See, it one-sided? And when Lewis Midgley uh, called me up, I was cooperative at first, and then he sent me back what I he had recorded over the telephone, and it was so biased. I thought, well, I I can see that you're just you're interested in demeaning me. You're not interested in yeah. my book. Yeah. And I and I, I no longer had contact with him. He wrote two or three other letters, you know, and uh, pleading that I do so. And with the Davis Benton article, which is pretty nasty too, uh, I I understood he was going to write a piece. I called him up. I says, you know, we've never met. Uh, would you like to go to lunch? I'll be happy to tell you about myself. No, I don't need that. And then he writes this article about me. I know a person who actually conducts an experiment. He takes the five or six reviews of my book from farms, gives it to a person, and hands him my book and say, read them both, and you tell me, does farms review answer Palmer's issues in his book? And in every case, they say, say no. no. Well, what real quick, it... You got to the end of your journey and your book writing experience having serious doubts and questions about Mormon origins, um, but you still published the book. So you had to have at some point said, whatever my purposes were in exploring and writing the book, I've now come to this conclusion where I can't tie everything up in a neat little package. Uh, I, I can't uh, resolve all these issues for my readers, but I still want to publish this book anyway. And yeah. your your forward, I, I read it just a couple nights ago, and your forward says, you know, uh, it talks a bit about your intent. It, it definitely says you're not trying to hurt the church, that you love the church, that you're not trying to destroy the church. Um, so what, you know, when you submitted the publication, what was your intent uh, for the audience? What did you hope would happen in terms of, uh, the church and its membership and the and the overall dialogue and conversation, the understanding, you know, you must have knew that there'd be implications for you and for the readers. So how did, you know, how would you summarize your intentions or goals or objectives with uh, publishing the well, book? Well, there are four or five reasons why I wrote the book. I mean, as Sir Edmund Hillary said after climbing Mount Everest for the first time, he says, why did you do it? And he says, and he says because it is there. And I would say I did it for one because the material was there and uh, and hadn't uh, been put together before. I mean, there's not a lot that's new in my book. The, the golden pot stuff is the most, you know, I'm the first one to really detail that that material and, and make those comparisons and parallels. But... Uh, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but but the, but the idea of uh, I'm also a historian, and I've been putting these things on the shelf for years. Like I said, the evangelical influence of the Book of Mormon. My PhD study that became more obvious. The more I understood the Bible, the more I saw that there. We can talk about this in some of your later questions, but. Uh, I, I just felt like the only honorable thing to do is to, is to deal with these issues, and I still feel that way. I, I just don't—open and honest is, is the word for me, and I've 
I love the church, I think, enough that I think that the truth, only the truth is good enough for us Latter-day Saints. I, I have continually told my my church leaders that uh, I don't know how to repent from something that's true or probably true, And uh, if you, but I believe in the marketplace of ideas, and if you can show me I'm wrong, then uh, I'll be happy to change the change that in the next printing. Right. I had two first-class historians who know a lot in this church read the farm's reviews independently. I says, look, these people took a year to take a shot at me, and I want to have, and I appreciate that, at least I thought I did initially, Hmm. and I would like you to honestly tell me where things need to be changed. They both came back independently in their in their statements and said there's a couple of areas where you could have been more clear there's a there's an area or two where on the surface it looks like they they've got you in an area or two but deep down no they they really haven't penetrated anything and so no there's really nothing there don't worry about it mm-hmm. and i was frankly disappointed after a year of writing f- five seven reviews whatever you want to Count. Some of them ended up in a review of the reviews, and uh, one of them ended up in BYU studies, I think, or on the fair boards. The others were farms. I don't know if I fully answered that question. Well, I but t- other reasons. Uh, I just think that it just seemed to me that uh, the Mormon people have a right to know this stuff. I mean, they're asking for ten percent of your income and. Uh, it just seems to me that we, the time was has come to deal with this instead of just doing what we're doing. And and what what about the implications as as you're considering to publish this book about what impact it might have on people's faith, on people's families, on the church itself, on the church membership activity rates? How, how did you piece that together, or did you just say, uh, "Do what is right, let the consequences follow"? More more the latter. I just thought that we just need to deal with with our the Mormon past, and uh, I knew it would have a variety of reactions. I personally thought I'd probably be, or very likely could be disfellowshipped. A lot of people making dire predictions, and I think in my heart I didn't think I'd be excommunicated. And I later found out that uh, the stake president, who's my current stake president, has never excommunicated anyone. He's been in eight years, so... If I'd have known that, I would have even felt stronger that I'd probably only be disfellowship. But that that was in my heart of hearts thought what would happen. How would it affect people? Yes, it's going to affect people, but uh it's the honorable thing to do. It's only the truth is good enough for us LDS people. I mean I can use slogans like that. Uh I was raised that uh that this is this is the Church of Jesus Christ, and uh, and can the only true church afford to tell the truth? I, I think the answer has to be yes. I watched it sing 